Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing 15,000 Miles in a Catch by Captain Raymond Rallier de Batty, published in 1922. And if you haven't already, please have a look in the description for the podcast for a link to the Patreon site. And there, for $5 a month, you can help support the podcast. Now, today's episode is part six. We're continuing chapter four. Let's get on with the story. Esno and I climbed till we were out of breath and rested a while in that high eyrie to look down far below upon the boat, a mere toy, it seemed, hugging the shore in the little bay. Intense silence brooded round us, a silence undisturbed, since the first upheavals of nature in the cauldron of the world, by any sound save the cry of the seabirds and the howling of the winds which circle round this peak with a wild wailing or fierce shrieks like witch hags chasing each other on their broomsticks, or with a low and murmurous booming between the gusts. We ascended to the topmost peak, scrambling over broken pillars of rock and slipping over loose boulders wet with sea mists. Sometimes, as we went, birds were startled from the sparse tussock grass of the lower ledges or from cavities between the rocks, the females giving a plaintive whistle, the drakes sounding a deep, sonorous quack as they flew away on strong wings or ran like grouse or quails along the ridges. They were teal, a rather small duck with dark brown plumage tipped with white and another with a lighter shade of brown. It was the first time in their life story that their quietude had been disturbed by human beings and they were startled at the sight of us. I shot a few of them, the first game that had fallen to our guns since leaving France and the sound of my gun seemed to echo against every crag and in every cavern. Thousands of birds were scared from their nests and flew with a clamour of wings and frightened cries across the island. Esno picked up the ducks that had fallen to their unknown enemy, and then we descended the path, carrying this welcome addition to our larder. That night we had a feast on board, during which I described my climb as we sat at our table in our little cabin. We decided that the first new peak to be explored by us should be called after the gallant man whose portrait looked down upon us from the bulkhead. I hope that the mountain on Roland Island will always be known by the name of Charcot Peak, which we put upon our chart. Over the ducks our tongues wagged faster than is usual for sailors, for it was good fare after our tinned provisions and held out a promise of flesh pots which would soften the hardships of our future life. Esno had surpassed himself in his galley, taking a new pride in his profession, and he bore in the steaming dishes with an air of triumph. Even La Rose, who had been wondering how Kogulian would agree with him, concluded that if such ducks could often be stewed in their own juice, life would not be unsupportable. My readers will perhaps pardon me lingering over that mealtime, which still makes my mouth water at the thought of it. During our stay in Roland Isle, we came near to losing our gallant little craft. The bay afforded no safe shelter from the northeasterly gales that came whistling up with sharp, shrill gusts, so that we could never relax our vigilance or be certain of safety from one hour to another. I was sitting at a meal in the cabin when one of these wind volleys came booming into the bay and caught us with a frightful broadside as we lay at anchor. It came with swift and sudden force and healed us almost onto our beam ends. I was first made aware of the blow that had struck us by lurching off my seat and finding that all the perpendiculars of the cabin had shifted into acute angles, or, to speak more simply, that we had been thrown sideways with a loud bang 
from the cap full of wind. The meal that had been laid by Asno was promptly hurled into our laps and onto the floor, where the juice trickled into our lockers. At the same moment, for it all happened in a few seconds, I heard Bon Tom's voice shouting on deck. I caught his words and they scared me a good deal. We are running onto the rocks. Captain, come quick. We are running onto the coast. I was not long in taking that companion ladder. I swung up on deck and a swift glance to starboard and helm showed me that our position was indeed most perilous. Our anchor had dragged in the sandy bottom and the smack of wind had buffeted us right round to the jagged walls of that basalt coast. Our stern at that moment was only a few yards from the rocks and it was clear that another of those wild volleys would dash us to certain destruction. I think for the next quarter of an hour our hearts stood in our mouths, as the old saying goes. None of us gave any expression to any sign of fear, but I know that I was very much afraid, not for myself, but for our brave little ship. It was pitiful to think that after her gallantry on the high seas, she might be broken into splinters on those abominable cliffs, which were as sharp and jagged as a saw. We listened intently to the voice of the wind. Outside in the open sea, it was groaning and complaining and fretting the waters into a witch's cauldron of seething surf. But, by the grace of God, it did not come quickly again into the funnel of the narrow bay, and presently its force abated. Our anchors held throughout the rest of the night, and when the dawn came, Henry and I, who had been sharing the watch, turned in for a little sleep, with strict commands to the relief watch, to keep a sharp lookout for any sign of change in the wind. But we had lost all desire to remain longer in that bay and decided to move on at once to safer anchorage. When destruction on the rocks seemed to be the almost certain fate of the J.B. Charcot, I had taken a measure of precaution which might at least be the means of keeping ourselves alive for some months. Hurrying into the cabin, I stuffed a canvas sack with a variety of articles that would be of most use to shipwrecked seamen cast ashore. Chief among them were guns, cartridges, matches, needles, twine, biscuits, rum, and some tins of meat. It seemed to me that if we could cling to the sack, we should be by no means helpless. We would make a struggle for life anyhow on Roland Isle, and with Robinson Crusoe as our example, we might grow long beards and still be alive and well when a sealer or a whaling boat came within hail. I had proved that birds were plentiful on these rocks and our guns would provide a larder. With matches, we should not go without a campfire, with needles and twine, we could make a boat out of our old sail. For a time, it would have been no worse than a picnic. So, at least I assured myself, though the fun of the thing would have soon worn off, and the good God alone can say how many years might pass before we sighted a friendly sail and escaped from that rock-bound prison. Providentially, as I have said, we escaped that fate on Roland Isle, but the shipwreck sack, as we called it, became an important part of our equipment, and the crew were instructed to make that their first care if the worst came, and our good ship fell among the rocks. All knew where to lay their hands upon it. Well, as I have said, we decided to get away to safer waters, but fate played tricks with us. Bontomps whistled at the bows, but not a breath of wind answered him. After the storm we were in a dead calm, and our sails drooped like the wings of a tired bird. There was nothing to be done but to remain where we were. But at any moment, another of those gusts which came eddying round Charcot Peak might again catch us and give us another horrid half-hour, ending perhaps in the tragedy which we had already so narrowly escaped. Henry and I hit upon a plan which was not perfect, 
but the best we could do. We had a boat lowered, and with a rope slung to the bows of our small ship, rowed across to land on one side of the bay, and fixed it taut to the rocks. Then we fastened a rope to the ship's stern, and rowing across to the other side of the narrow bay, tied that up also. Here we were then, tethered to earth like a restive colt, and I suppose those ropes would have been some use in keeping us off the rocks, though not much use if the wind proved a heavy strain. It gave us, though, a sense of security. But after the calm, we were at our wit's end how to circumvent the funnel of wind that now came circling again round what we called that damn rock in every direction but the right one to fill our sails and carrying us out into open water. It almost appeared that we were in no better plight than if we had actually gone on to the rocks. It was very nice to have a ship to sleep in, of course, but what we wanted was a ship to sail in, and sail we could not with those madcap gusts succeeded by exasperating calms. Well, our sailors' wits got to work again. We took the anchor on its chain to shore and drove it into the land at an angle from the Charcot. Then, with the winch on board, we hauled ourselves round foot by foot towards the north of the bay. Shifting our anchor further and further to the extremity of the bay, we worked at the winch again, and, strange as it may appear, succeeded in getting clear of the harbour into which we had towed the little ship upon our arrival, little guessing how difficult would be the way of escape. This manoeuvre on our part does not come within the codebook of navigation, but it is surprising what things you have to do when you go exploring desert islands. For the first time, the smallness of the J.B. Charcot was a source of safety. Anyhow, there we stood out at sea, where we filled our sails with a good west wind, free at last from those goblin blasts that had come dancing round Charcot Peak. It was on 9th of March that we made our cheerful farewell to Roland Isle, but we were more than three hours tacking up the bight towards Christmas Harbour, for which we were now bound. Night had just fallen when we dropped anchor, but for an hour or more we were able to see the scenery upon the mainland of Kogulian, which we had now reached at that point. Christmas Harbour received its name from the fact that Captain James Cook anchored here on Christmas Day 1777, with his two vessels the Resolution and Discovery. In describing the character of that land which now lay before us, and where we were to wander for many a long month and have many adventures, I confess that my thoughts may be coloured by a familiarity with, and even fondness, of those grim shores. Other sailors have sighted this coast or lane for a few days in Christmas Harbour, but in fog and storm their imagination has been appalled by the somewhat awful aspect of the Isle of Desolation. Yet as we sailed into the harbour, Henry and I were both impressed profoundly by the grandeur and solemn majesty of the hill country, which stretched away, peak upon peak, to the great mountain ranges and their cloud-capped summits. The harbour itself was about a mile wide at the gateway, with Cape Francois on the north, and on the south a rock 150 feet high, where the incessant sea has bored an archway 100 feet broad, through which, at one angle, one sees the coastline with other mighty cliffs and rocks stretching away to the far horizon. On one side is a bay increasing the breadth of Christmas Harbour, which narrows down gradually towards its head, where there is a smooth beach of dark sand stretching across for more than a thousand feet. It was here that we anchored, staring above us at the great black basalt ramparts, like the bastions of some vast bastille, rising ledge by ledge to the height of more than a thousand feet, while beyond was the great Table Mountain, 1,350 feet high, and Mount Havergal, 
1,430 feet, upon which the giants seemed to have spread white tablecloths for an Olympian feast. Black as coal were the smooth, polished walls above us, silent as a fortress of King Death, terrible at first sight in their frowning majesty, yet not without wondrous shades and lights and colours. For the sun, setting over the land as we sailed in, had filled the sky with a glory of red and gold, reflected with magic beauty upon the smooth waters within the shelter of the rocks, and its rays bathed the basalt walls with a rich glow, flashing upon the face of them as though some of those jagged spurs were veined with gold, and giving a curiously soft beauty to some of the rounded boulders, as though they were cushions upon which great deities might recline at ease, and overspreading others with a faint crimson flush, and empurpling the deep shadows that lay between the ridges. I have seen that coast a thousand times and more, when, in a snow squall or a wet fog, it has seemed truly diabolical in its grim ugliness, a savage, naked land of desolation, to be shunned by mortals and good angels. But on a fair day, with the sun aglint upon the rocks, all is different, and Kagulian has a beauty of its own which steals into the heart and puts a spell upon one's senses, and has haunting memories for seamen who have adventured there. We did not arrive without a greeting. The inhabitants of this land, upon which no human foot was set when we came near, had, it seemed, come to stare at us with round-eyed surprise. They were penguins, hundreds of them, and they stood in ranks upon the terraces of the cliffs, like files of soldiers preparing to defend their shore from invasion. Curiously, human creatures like old, old dwarves, especially when seen in the darkening gloom, they stood there erect as though they had seen us from afar and were waiting to hold parley with us. I have said they were like soldiers drawn up in single files. Perhaps I mix my metaphors, but seen nearer at hand, they might have been the waiters in some vast restaurant of natural history in black tailcoats and clean white shirt fronts, and they all bowed to us repeatedly with the gravity of a maître d'hôtel. All through our wanderings in Kogulian, we came across these penguins, and our great French author Anatole France would find ample material here for the sequel to his Ile des Penguins. We had to kill some of them, poor birds, for we needed food, and found their flesh not bad and very comforting to our hunger, but they were always most polite to us, having a natural and unfailing courtesy even to their executioners, and in a way, they gave us a sense of human companionship. Many a time we have shouted with laughter at their comical ways. They had no fear of us when we did not go out of our way to disturb them, and, often standing in front of a king penguin, I would talk to him in French, and he would reply with that grave inclination of his head, which is their most characteristic movement, and by a most sagacious expression in his grave button eyes. At times we used to go to their nests, which are no more than holes in the sands, to search for their eggs. The females used to waddle away, each with her one egg held firmly between her web foot, and then we would just take them by the neck and slip the egg away without hurting them. But at those times, we sometimes got a sharp nip from their strong bills. That, however, is anticipating our future life on Kogulian, and I must again return to the night we anchored in Christmas Harbour, under the shelter of the immense cliffs. That night, my brother and I sat in the cabin talking of all our plans, while on deck Agne played soft music on his accordion, and La Rose, Bontemps and Esno played a game of cards, well thumbed after their long voyage. 
It was with a sense of thankfulness that Henry and I faced each other over the chart of the island. We had come many thousands of miles through storms in two oceans, through weather varying between strong gales and dead calms, and we had arrived at last at the land of our ambition without any serious mishap. Before us now lay months of adventure of another kind. Kerguelen was our own. No other soul claimed a share of this island of desolation. But before it could be really ours, we should have to explore its hidden ways and fill up the gaps upon the chart. It was not to be a life of love and idleness, but we look forward to the toil and the sport of it with buoyant and trusting hearts. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going around. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.